Let me invite you to take your Bibles and join us again in the book of Hebrews and again in the 11th chapter, Hebrews 11. We'll begin reading in a moment in verse 23. You recall a week ago we were in this very chapter and we stopped in 22, verse 22, because that was the end of uh, the lineage of Abraham, if you will, or the story or narrative associated with the life of Abraham. Uh, He turns now in verse 23 to the life of Moses and from there Joshua and uh, of course that brings into the story Rahab, the prostitute who served the Lord in uh, securing the spies and their safety and from there in verse 32 he's going to turn to the judges. He's going to mention Gideon. Gideon is among the most famous of the judges Uh, If there is one more famous than Gideon, it would be Samson, and uh, he's going to mention him too, and I'll have uh, something to say about that. Uh, He's going to mention David only passing. He's not going to tell David's story. He perhaps assumes we know the story, and it doesn't need to be told any further, but he's going to immediately move from there and recount these great stories of victory and great stories of sorrow and Uh, I'm reminded that as we read the 11th chapter of Hebrews, he assumes that you not only read the Old Testament, but that you value the Old Testament. So there is something to be said for that as we read this great New Testament chapter. So let's begin reading in verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents Because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. 
They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. I want to think with you this morning about this very last phrase in this chapter, that God has provided something better, something better. And we know that that something better is not a thing, but a one, but a person, the man, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is better, and he is that which is better for us and for all of those who would come to know God, to be made perfect. He makes a point at the end that apart from us, these others that are very famous, if you will. I mean, after all, as we began reading, and we're going to consider in detail in a moment, we come to the life of Moses. Is there anybody more famous than Moses? Not in the Scripture. He is Uh, the lawgiver. He is the man of God. He is the one who not only gives the law, but records the first five books of the Old Testament for us, the so-called Torah or Pentateuch. We're thankful for the life of Moses. It doesn't get any bigger than Moses' name throughout the Old Testament. And yet, apart from us, Moses' story is incomplete. He moves on to Joshua, and from there he moves on to the judges, Gideon and Samson and so forth, then to David, to Samuel. Doesn't get any bigger than those names throughout the Old Testament, throughout the history of God's activity with his people. And yet, apart from us, their story is incomplete. So that's an important, even a provocative statement for us to consider the implications together this morning. I want you to note that uh, what he's championing in this chapter as he's doing so throughout the book of Hebrews is that faith in Christ is indeed exactly what all of these other stories, all of these other narratives have been about. Moses is pointed forward to the one that he could see by faith. And by seeing, he acted accordingly. David pointed forward to the one that he could see by faith, and by seeing, he acted accordingly. Moses pointed forward to the one that he could see by faith, and he acted accordingly. The exhortation, therefore, for our own lives is that we, having seen what he has done and looking forward to the promise of his second coming, his return, we likewise act accordingly. So I trust that today, as we consider these illustrations, that we will be greatly encouraged. just want to show you three things. I've simply said true faith makes us courageous. Secondly, true faith makes us obedient. And thirdly, true faith makes us perfect. We'll explore those three things in this section. Notice in verse 23, true faith makes us courageous. Maybe as you read the story of Moses, 
this doesn't jump off the page at you in the manner in which it does to me, but I want you to note. Notice again in verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. Actually, verse 23 is not about Moses, it's about his mom and dad. But you'll notice the refrain, because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid. Not afraid. Not afraid of what? Not afraid of Pharaoh. Now I want to tell you, if you're lining up the people with power, Pharaoh's top of the list. If you're lining up the people that you ought to be afraid of, Pharaoh's top of the list. Hebrew boys were commanded to be thrown into the Nile, food for crocodiles. But the parents of Moses said, we're not doing that. And it doesn't matter if the strongest man on the planet, of which Pharaoh might have been, says so. We're not doing it. Because we're convinced that that would be disobedient to God. So true faith makes courageous. Notice he continues that same theme, verse 24. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Choosing rather to be mistreated. To be treated as a Hebrew. He considered himself a Hebrew because, of course, he was. Now, you'll recall, he's adopted by Pharaoh's daughter and he's raised in Pharaoh's house. He's raised as the king of Egypt's grandson. But instead of claiming that privilege and all the accoutrements associated with that, he considered himself a Hebrew. He lived as a Hebrew and he suffered the indignities of a slave people. Why? Because he wasn't afraid to be counted as one of God's people, no matter the external pressures to the contrary. Consider specifically, verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. He was looking for the reward. By faith, he left Egypt not being afraid not being afraid of the anger of the king. For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. True faith makes us courageous. True faith does not turn aside no matter how difficult it becomes, how hard it becomes, how fearful it it becomes. True faith makes us courageous. He goes on in this section, of course, in this chapter uh, to describe these who have experienced, uh, if you will, great courageous faith. Down in verse 35, through faith they conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Again, you read the stories of the patriarchs whether it's the judges or the kings or those who are the prophets. And you'll find that these great followers of God are men and women of great courage. You cannot spell faith without courage. Faith that doesn't make you courageous is not biblical faith. It makes you unafraid of these things, unaware 
is one thing. There are many things that are out there that I don't know about, and I don't know whether I should or should not be afraid. But of those things that are fearful, if they would attempt to drive me from God, drive me from faithfulness, drive me from obedience, drive me from righteousness, then these things are wrong. And as a man or woman of courage, we must step in, lean in. Many things, many things that are wrong in the church, church with a little c, the universal church, Many things that characterize the people of God in the Old Testament. But you would have to say that the thing that is consistent between the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God even today is that we are so easily afraid. We're afraid the government is going to do something to ruin our lives well I don't know maybe they are maybe they're going to do something to wound our lives but if my life is in heaven I doubt they're going to ruin it invariably what you find in the scripture is that these folks somehow use an eternal scorecard, not a temporal scorecard. They use a heavenly scorecard and not an earthly scorecard. It's pretty explicit in verse 26. Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward, heaven. By faith he left Egypt, verse 27, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. I wonder today, as you're processing those things that scare you, whether it be sickness, obviously, there's a lot of that going on, a lot of fear of sickness, or maybe the fear of some calamity to your children or grandchildren, maybe some calamity to your spouse, maybe even some calamity to yourself. As you're processing all of that, I wonder if you might step back and ask yourself, can I trust God in this? Should I be courageous? Is this an opportunity for me to lean in courageously? It seems to me that as you read Hebrews 11, you can't ignore the emphasis that faith equals courage. It may say something about our own faith where we find ourselves shackled by fear and we say, there's nothing wrong with my faith, I'm just afraid. And I would suggest to you those are links of the same chain in the Scripture. We are to be men and women who trust God, look to God, hope in God. He is our help in time of trouble. He is our help. So I would suggest to you that we should process life spiritually rather than physically. And this chapter challenges us, if you will, pokes us in the eye and says, what are you looking at? 
What are you paying attention to? We read the scriptures and then ignore the lessons learned there. Let us not be guilty of that. True faith makes us courageous. Not wildly courageous, not silly courageous, not without foundation courageous. Our hope is not in nothing. Our hope is in Christ. That's our hope. And if we will look to Christ, we will be men and women of great courage. It seems to me that when the world is afraid, the church should be a blowtorch of courage. That's why Moses' story stands out. That's why his parents' story stands out. That's why Joshua's story stands out. Because everybody around them is afraid, and they're not. Why are they not? Because they see what other people ignore or refuse to see. True faith makes us courageous. The Apostle Paul references this in a couple of occasions. I I have often read these uh, scriptures in funerals. This is not a funeral, so let's read them in another context. Romans 8.18, you'll know these verses. Let me read this one. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared. Are we suffering? Sure we are. We suffer every day. We suffer in all kinds of ways. We suffer in major ways. Yes, there are many who are suffering in major ways, and they always have, and they always will. We live in a broken, fallen world, and suffering is a fact, and it is real. And let us not gloss over it. Let us not pretend it doesn't matter. Let us not sugarcoat it. And by no means, let us not respond to suffering with some sort of platitudes. Oh, it'll be okay. You know, God knows what he's doing. Listen, friend, when you've just lost a loved one, that is the wrong thing to say. That's not untrue. But would you please be quiet? Because you're not helping. You don't know how to help people in the midst of their grief if you talk like that. Because grief is real and life is hard and life hurts. And we need to contend with that earnestly and deal with it. But in the end, when when somebody gets the air knocked out of them, they can't sing a song in the next sentence. It takes a minute. Before they get their air back, before you drop some deep theological platitudes on people, let them catch their breath. In fact, I would suggest to you it takes months, depending on the magnitude of the suffering. Having said that, true faith still looks to God in the midst of suffering, still looks to glory in the midst of the sorrows of this life. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. They're not. Listen, when we get there, it won't be a problem. I referenced this. Our guys prayed before the service, and we're praying this morning, and I referenced this. You know, when a, when a woman is having a, a child, and I've only seen that happen three times, and it appeared to be a burden. Two of those times, the nurse told me to put my head between my legs, so <laughs> apparently it wasn't my environment. 
I just don't. It, I, I, I believe a circulatory system should be felt but never seen. That's what I think. So I don't like blood. But I did know this, that in spite of the travail, the hardship of childbirth, at some point, but not immediately, at some point, Susan quit thinking about that. And all she cared about was our child. It didn't happen that quick, but it happened pretty quick. So there is a sense where the sufferings of this life, though they are real, are temporary. They're transient. There is a sense where God helps and ministers. There is a sense where all those platitudes are true. You know, in time, it'll be better. Well, yeah, it will. But would you not bring that up just now? Would you maybe save that for six months from now? But in the meantime, just talk about God. Talk about the greatness of God. Talk about the power of God, and the strength of God, and the glory of God. Most of all, talk about the love of God. Because right now, it just hurts. But if we'll keep our eye on God, if we'll keep our eye on Christ, it'll be okay. There's another passage, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 and following. Paul writes, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We look to the things that are eternal instead of the things that are temporary. We look to the things that we can't see instead of the things that we do see. That's why the world mocks us. That's why the world doesn't understand faith. That's why the world rejects faith. That's why the darkness doesn't care about the light. Because they don't see it. They don't want it. They don't esteem it. They don't see the value in it. The darkness merely wants more darkness. But you, friend, you do see it. And because you see it, true faith fuels your life, gives lift to your life in the midst of difficult circumstances. You can't read Hebrews 11 and somehow come away and say, man, those folks had it easy. No, they didn't. Verse 36, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others were mocked, flogged, chains, imprisonment, stone, sawn in two. That's my favorite way to go. They were killed with the sword. They went in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, wandering about in deserts, mountains, dens, and caves. I just remind you, the next time you're getting a little weak, your faith getting a little tarnished, because you think somehow your life is hard or harder. Other people should walk around and feel sorry for you beyond feeling sorry for everybody else. You have the worst case of difficulty or hardship the world has ever known. 
far as I know, not a one of us are living in caves. Not a one of us have resorted to having to kill animals to clothe ourselves. Not a one of us have ever been tortured. Not a one of us have ever been thrown in chains into a prison or into a river. Not a one of us. So I've got good news for you. It could be worse. But true faith makes you courageous. Hmm. There's a second thing we see here, and that is that true faith makes us obedient. True faith makes us obedient. This is often ignored, but should not be. You'll note that uh, verse 26, by faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer, the firstborn, might not touch them. You remember Moses' story, the, the angel of death is coming, and if you don't kill the lamb and sprinkle the blood over the doorpost, uh, he's coming to your house, and the firstborn in that household will die. So the only solution is to do what you're told. The only antidote or the only proof that you're a believer that you're one of God's people, is that you do what you're told. And what you're told to do is to kill a lamb and take its blood and sprinkle it over the doorpost. The angel of death will then pass over. So the scripture says that Moses kept the Passover, that he sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer, the angel of death, might not touch him. By faith, verse 29, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. Now, don't just read that and say, well, of course they did. Well, would you? We don't know exactly where they crossed the sea, but let's assume for the sake of conversation, the, walls, the Bible says the water is walled up on either side. They walk across on dry land. Okay, how high is that wall of water on your right? How high is that wall of water on your left? Anybody ever had that experience? No. Well, let's imagine there's a wall of water on your right. If it's shallow, I'm telling you that wall of water is 10 feet tall because we've just pushed the whole sea to the side. And if it's deep, well, I would tell you there's no way to know how high that wall of water is. But let's pick a round number. Let's say it's 30 feet high. I don't know how high it is to the ceiling here, but let's say for the sake of conversation, it's 40 feet. Would you walk through knowing that there's a 40-foot wall of water there and a 40-foot wall of water there? Would you walk through? By the way, nobody you know or nobody you'll ever know has ever been asked to do what you've just been asked to do. Walk through a wall of water. And the scripture says, by faith they obeyed. You say, well, I would leave too, because there's a great army coming. Well, yeah, yeah, sure is. Exodus 14 is a story. I won't have time to belabor it for just a moment, but I want to make sure that you hear it. Verse 10, Scripture says they came to the sea, and Pharaoh is hot on their trail. And we pick up the narrative in verse 10 of Exodus 14. When Pharaoh drew near, 
The people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, of course, right? And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you would taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. And then a very tragic statement, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Would you rather die in obedience or die in disobedience? By the way, these folks never got over their disobedience. Turns out they're going to die in the wilderness anyway. Every last one of them except Joshua and Caleb and the folks who joined with them. True faith makes you obedient. Notice what Moses said. Moses said to the people, verse 13, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to. And I so badly want to use the S word here, but there are children here. Spelled S-H-U-T. Shut that word, you know. If I were Moses, I would, have, I would have said, I am done with you turkeys. I would have. Thanks be to God, Moses is a better man than me. He just said, and you just need to be silent. You need to watch the Lord do what the Lord does. Your job is to obey. Your job is not to critique God. Your job is not to judge God. You're not, your job is not to evaluate God. Your job is to obey. True faith makes us obedient. How important is this? Well, here James, the half-brother of Jesus, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. James had much to say about this. Uh, verse 18, chapter 2. Some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works or your obedience, and I will show you my faith by my obedience. You believe that God is one. You do well. Guess what? Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works or obedience is useless? And he gives two illustrations. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled, it says, Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works or obedience and not by faith alone. And then notice his second illustration, and in the same way, was not also Rahab? Uh-oh. Those of you watching my internet don't know. We just had a moment. <laughs> Rahab, the prostitute, was justified by obedience when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also, also faith apart from obedience 
he is dead. True faith makes us obedient. You'll notice in Hebrews 11 that the writer reminds us of Rahab. Verse 31, I will tell you that there there are two people in this story, in this chapter, that, that get a very, very bad rap because of bad preaching. One is Rahab. If you're reading the New Testament with us, you'll you'll read the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, and you'll note that Rahab is uh, in the genealogy of Jesus. Do you remember the connection? Rahab is the mother of Boaz. Boaz. Boaz, of course, is the ancestor of the Savior meaning Rahab is the ancestor of the Savior. Rahab is an Amorite. She is not a Jewish person. And on top of that, she's a woman of questionable past. But the writer of Hebrews and the book of James, the half-brother of Christ, both include her in a list of righteous people. Now that bugs people who don't have a category for prostitutes going to glory. I don't have time to to lean into that, but I want to tell you, if your theology doesn't agree with Hebrews and James, the problem's not with Hebrew and James. The second person that gets a bad rap here is Samson. Virtually all preaching that you will hear about Samson suggests that Ham- Samson is this uh, you know, just terrible man uh, with great unlimited potential and so forth, and he just, he just ended his whole life badly. And he virtually, you, you've heard some people you say he committed suicide by knocking down the, the pillars that brought down the roof and killed all the Philistines. First of all, that's not suicide at all. That's faithfulness. He's a warrior, and he's a warrior to the end. Certainly not suicide. Any suggestion of suicide there is completely bogus and has no foundation. And the writer of Hebrews points to Samson as a man of great faith. This is not a sermon on Samson, but I so badly want to preach Samson. That's why I tell you, I could could do a, a sermon on every one of these. And on Samson, I could probably take about four sermons. Because there's an awful lot of gobbledygook out there under the name of how bad a man Samson was. In fact, Samson was a righteous man and a man made righteous because of his faith in God. And the only way you or I or Rahab or Samson or anybody else is going to be righteous is because of faith, not because of our works. But because we are people of faith, we will be obedient. And Samson is obedient for reasons that I don't have time to explain. Again, if your theology does not permit the notion that Samson is a good and righteous man, and I want you to know you're disagreeing with the Bible, no matter how many sermons you've heard to the contrary. What we do know is that true faith makes us obedient. And so as people of God, we are to be likewise people who are obedient. True faith believes God to the end, clings to God because Jesus is better, because God is better, because we have seen into the glories of God and the promises of God, and we believe them, and it choreographs our lives accordingly. 
We don't, we don't, we don't, we don't because of faith. We do, we do, we do, we do because of faith. Because we are people of God. We are defined differently. We live differently. We orchestrate our lives differently. It ought to be said of the church today that no matter what the culture does, the church will be obedient to God. No matter the way the wind blows, the church will be obedient to God. We will stay with God. You say, well, you know, we, have to, we may have to stand alone. Well, take a number, friend. The people of God have always had to be willing to stand alone. My objective in life is not to transform the culture. My objective in life is to live for God. And if God wants to use me to transform the culture, whatever that is, then so be it. But if God just wants me to live in such a way as that I love my wife, love my children, love my grandchildren, love my neighbor as myself, and somehow be an influence with one or two or 20 or 30 or 50 or 100 or 1,000 or who knows, if that's God's plan, so be it. Bloom where you're planted, friend. Be obedient. Do the right thing. Do the God thing. And keep doing it until you die. And if you end up being sawn in two, glory. If you receive back your dead by resurrection, glory. If, if it's good, great. If it's bad, great. It's God. Your home is in heaven. The only question that's left is how many people are going to go because of me? And how am I going to go? You know, most people go to heaven, go sick. <laughs> I wish I had better news for you. You know, most people who die, die sick. The notion of dying in your sleep when you're 100 years old, well, that just doesn't usually happen. Most of us get sick and we die. The only question is, how am I going to live until that day? I'm working real hard. You know, I'm eating my bran and oh, you know, taking care of myself, exercising, you know, three or four times a day. Uh, you know, I, I, I really do want to live a long life. I really do. I mean, I do. I do. I, I want to live a long life, serve the Lord till I die. And I don't want to die sick because I just don't like being sick. I don't like people doting on me. I don't like people standing over. Doesn't he look good? He looks so natural. <sighs> you know, I just, I just, I'm just not interested in any of that. I mean, I'd, I'd like to go out with my boots on. I, I got it all scripted, but you know what? I get a vote, and it really turns out it's not a vote. God's not going to count my vote. He's got a plan, and I'm just working out the plan. He knows what he's doing. He wants me to be obedient. He wants me to be courageous. He wants you to be obedient. He wants you to be courageous. He wants you to be men and women of faith who trust him, who look to him, who cling to him, who know that God is at work in your life and that God is doing things that are profound and that God intends to do them even though you can't see them. You know, I was thinking about this, just one, one illustration. Rahab. You know, Rahab is uh, kind of minding her own business. Bad, bad term. Uh, Rahab is living her life, um, and, and these two spies show up. Number one, her life is never the same. And number two, she has no idea she's going to eventually marry some guy named 
or have, have a child named, named Boaz. She has no idea. She doesn't, she doesn't, she doesn't know she's in the lineage of, the, of Jesus. Any more than you know what God intends to do with you. You don't know. And you don't know if it's going to happen in your 30th year, your 50th year, or your 95th year, Mary Catherine. Uh, you, don't, you don't know what God intends to do. You just don't know. All you can do is just be faithful. We walk by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. If today may be the day. Today may not be the day. Today may be the day I get thrown in chains. Today may be the day I get sawn in two. Today may be the day that we stop the mouths of lions. But whatever we do today, let's be found to be faithful, obedient, and courageous. There's one last thing, quickly. Notice in verse 39. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us. True faith not only makes us courageous, not only makes us obedient, but it makes us perfect. True faith makes us perfect. You'll say, well, I'm not perfect. You know, I'm still a sinner. Yeah, 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 I know all that. But I want you to notice what the Bible says in Hebrews 10. Go back to chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The law cannot make perfect. So the old covenant could not make a man perfect perfect. The old covenant with laws and sacrifices and temple and priests and and all of that could not make a man perfect. Uh, Look again in chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice... He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So I'm not perfect in this life, but in the life to come, I am perfect. So I am being sanctified ultimately toward my reward of perfection. I'm not perfect, but I will be. I'm not perfect, but I am. Not in this life, but in the life to come. I'm not a millionaire, billionaire, trillionaire, but in the life to come, I'm going to be perfect. And I'm in process toward being that, toward becoming that. But the old covenant, the covenant that Moses gave, the covenant that Joshua forwarded on, the the covenant that David was born under, the covenant that Rahab was born under, the, the covenant that all of these Old Testament saints, Gideon, Samson, all of, all of these saints lived under the old covenant apart from us. Apart from us, new covenant Christians, they could not be made perfect. There's nothing in the old covenant to make a man perfect. You have to have a perfect sacrifice and bulls and goats are not You have to have a perfect high priest. And Aaron and all of his descendants, the sons of Levi, are not. You have to have a perfect temple. And there is none in the old covenant. And on and on it goes. 
You must have Jesus. Jesus is better, and Jesus makes us better and gives us something better. And that something is perfection. I am not perfect, and neither are you. We live in a body of sin. It gets tired, it gets irritable, it gets unkind, it gets unkept. It can be ugly. It can be wrong, it can be evil, this body of sin. And it often is. But we are the people of God. And we have been bought with a precious blood that we would be better. And by faith, we see it afar. By faith, we long for it. And by faith, we claim it now. Something better is here. His name is Jesus. And I hope you're looking to him. By faith. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace in these days. Thank you for the mercies of your grace in Christ. Thank you for the word of God in Hebrews 11 to show us Christ and to show us that you have called us to live better because something better is here in the person of Christ. So, Lord, we love you so. We thank you so. And we pray that you would help us to go and tell of Jesus by the manner in which we speak and by the manner in which we live. Give us grace, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.